This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. For those of you who have been listening the last few minutes to this morning's newscast and what is happening in California with regard to rolling blackouts, you will be particularly interested in the conversation we are about to have with Catherine Blunt. Catherine Blunt is an award-winning journalist. She is a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, has been since 2018, before that worked, I believe, for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, she writes about and covers her beat is Renewable Energy and Utilities. She has a new book titled California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid, a really important book. We should note that what authors really look for and what publishers really look for is how is a book received by Kirkus Reviews and Publishers Weekly, and those two really important institutions gave Catherine Blunt's book, California Burning, extraordinarily favorable uh, reviews. Uh, her coverage of Pacific Gas and Electric was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize as well. Catherine Blunt, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time and your book. I'd like to ask you to give our listeners an overview of PG&E because the history is so interesting. This was I mean, a premier American company. We took such great pride. They did everything just the right way. They were part of the basis for California's becoming, well, a country unto itself and enormously successful economically and financially. And then, well, a lot happened. So perhaps you could give us the overview, and then I want to get to some specific questions about what happened. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So it's true. PG&E is a really storied institution. It has gold rush roots. It formed as a result of uh, the, you know, the acquisition of a lot of little power companies that were cropping up all throughout California as um, you know, electricity was becoming more viable. Um, it had one real competitor called Great Western Power, um, and the two companies um, then merged in 1930 to create this big regional monopoly as we know it today, serving most of Northern California and Central California. And uh, but the last twenty years have been really, really challenging for the company. Oh come um, on, we got, must have a better word than challenging. <laughs> I, under, I understand we, we're going to be nice for at the beginning, but disastrous. Thank you. <laughs> They've been disastrous for the company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, a series, a, a series of disasters, really. That um, uh, so the uh, as some listeners may remember the the California energy crisis, two thousand two thousand one. The company sought bankruptcy protection. Um, gets out, and a few years later, one of its natural gas transmission pipelines exploded uh, south of San Francisco, killing eight people. And then, in the you know the next uh, over the next ten years or so, its power lines would ignite. You know, more than twenty major wildfires that killed more than a hundred people. So, I think disastrous is an apt word, as you say. Refresh our memories. California burning. The title comes from what events and how does a power line cause wildfires and really consequential, really deadly, really huge wildfires? How does that happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's really two major events. So during one month in October um, of 2017, the company's power lines ignited 17 or, or 18 wildfires when tree branches touched live wires. So it wasn't doing enough to keep those trees away from the wires. Then the next year, in 2018, uh, in November, there was a tiny hook hanging from the arm of a transmission tower um, deep in a remote canyon. 
that broke nearly in half and dropped the high-voltage wire that it was supporting. And electricity surged from the wire, sparks fell on the ground, and it ignited the deadliest and most destructive fire in California history. It killed 84 people. As you tell this story, Catherine Blunt, and we should note for our listeners just joining us, we're speaking with Catherine Blunt, the award-winning journalist whose new book is California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. It doesn't sound like, I, I, I don't mean to be uh, facetious, well, maybe I do, uh, but this doesn't sound like rocket science to keep trees away from power lines, to not have power lines in a position where they can uh, ignite uh, a, 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 and cause a catastrophe for the people of California. It sounds very basic. Are we talking here about a story that's really about ineptitude? Uh, are we talking about greed? What, what is at the bottom of this story of PG&E causing so much havoc and destruction? Yeah, so the answer is a little bit of both. Um, it's probably worth noting for listeners, uh, this gets a little in the weeds, but it's an important thing to understand. Utilities make money. Uh, they generate profits by making um, large capital investments in their system. They do not make money on what are known as operations and maintenance expenses, which is basically day-to-day um, inspections and you know replacement of these little tiny parts, as we're discussing. And so you know, a good financial performer is able to reduce expenses and use the extra money to invest in capital. In theory, a company can strike this balance safely. PG&E did not strike this balance safely. So it was reducing uh, expenses in the form of power line inspections, and for, it was completely unaware as a result of the state of the hook that was on the verge of failure for a long time. Uh, it also needed to do more in general to trim trees. This gets a little complicated because they, you know, they rely on contractors to do the work. It kind of introduces a new layer of complexity, but um, it's it's true. I mean, the, these are this is not rocket science. It's easy to understand. Go back for one sec to, to something you just said, which is how utilities, a highly regulated business uh, in, throughout the country, how a business makes money on investments in their infrastructure but not on the actual selling of the electricity. I don't think that's intuitive for most listeners. Help us understand that. Yeah, so um, so when you think about a utility service territory, it's filled with all kinds of things, right? You've got power lines, probably power plants, substations, and collectively the value of that infrastructure is known as the rate base. And regulators allow these companies to earn an authorized rate of return on the value of their system. So when they invest more capital in the system, it becomes more valuable, and they make an, an authorized profit on those investments. The, the, but there's other uh, work that the company needs to do, right? It needs to spend money to basically inspect all this stuff to make sure that it's safe and up to snuff. And... Um, you know, potentially make little replacements here and there that don't add to the overall value of the system. And that's just, that's just an expense. They don't earn any money on that. So if you're able to reduce how much you're, you know, expense, spending on this expense work, it gives you more money to invest in these big projects that increase the overall value of the system. And 
this is a hard balance to strike. I mean, there's this creates real tension, right, between private interests and the public good, and it's incumbent upon every utility company to try to balance it and incumbent upon the regulators to make sure they're doing so correctly. But in this case, pg was not striking the right balance, and the regulator didn't recognize it. Okay, so help us understand, if you would, please, who's regulating these electric utilities? Is it always the state in which they are located? And what about utility companies that uh, operate across state lines? And and as a secondary, well, it's not a secondary question. It's, it's part and parcel of the same, same question, which is, where are the regulators? I mean, okay, the company's being greedy and saying we're going to not put money into maintenance because we don't make anything on that. We're going to put it into large infrastructure projects because that's how we make money. But where are the regulators? Isn't Who's looking out for the public interest here? Right, right. So in most cases, uh, these companies are overseen by state utility commissions. So if you've got a, you know, a utility that spans multiple states, it's accountable to multiple different regulatory bodies. Um, in California, it's the California Public Utilities Commission. Um, it's basically as old as, as PG&E itself. It used to be known as the Railroad Commission because it was established to oversee railroads. But So what happened over the last 20 years is, is California became very intent on reducing carbon emissions by adding a a lot of uh, new wind and solar farms. And the utilities were really instrumental in achieving these goals. They had to go out and contract for all that new green energy. And within the regulatory body, it was, you know, frankly, it was a sexier place to be, you know, overseeing that kind of work, overseeing the procurement of of green energy. Um, As one former regulator put it to me, safety simply wasn't glamorous. It was a chronically understaffed department. They had issues um, you know, effectively staffing it. There was a kind of a revolving door issue between the regulator and the utility companies. And all that is to say is that it didn't, this, this, the regulatory body didn't have the resources necessary to oversee the safety of the system. And those regulators also underestimated the extent of the risk. Now, your, your book, Catherine Blunt, California Burning, is a story about power outages and wildfires and death and destruction and bankruptcies and court proceedings. Uh, is PG&E functioning again today? Is this the same company? Is, is the same company in charge of power in California with the same kind of corporate ethos today as was at the time of, well, what you tell in your book, which is not that many years ago, to be sure? Right, right. So, in short, I would say no. It is not the same company. It's under new leadership, and these disasters have really kind of shaken it awake, so to speak. And this, uh, there's a new CEO who came in with a really very 10,000 miles of power lines, and the reason for that is underground wires can't start fires. So that could be a game changer for the company, but of course the big challenge there will be cost management. Um, it's very expensive to do that, and rates in California are already very high. Um, but I think that the company's never been more aware of the risk throughout the system and the consequences of mismanaging that risk, but some of the risk is simply inherent. So that's not to say we're not going to see any more problems from PG&E, but they're trying to fix it in a way that they, they haven't historically. This is a story about California, but California is more than about California because it's always about what the 40-plus million people who live in that state. Does this story that you tell in California Burning, is it applicable to other states who are facing some of the same 
Let's go back to that word, challenges, about renewables and green energy and the need for <laughs> infrastructure involvement. Uh, is this story something that writ large applies to many other states, or is it singular to California? This is not just a, a California story, no. And the reason for that is, well, for one, all across the country, our electric grid is very old, um, becoming more prone to failure as a result. And the consequences of that failure are, are becoming higher as we see things like more severe droughts, heat waves. Think about what happened in Texas last year during the Texas freeze. Um, and, you know, making things worse is climate change. Climate change is exacerbating a lot of this severe weather. And so we're talking earlier about the um, trying to, you know, balance um, safety and maintenance work with work that generates profits. pg e is not the only company that has, you know, historically failed to strike the right balance here. And the consequences of that failure are becoming higher, especially as we rely on electricity even more uh, than we ever have before with more EVs and other things. So, um, you know, this, this story has national implications. Does the story as it affects regulators, does that have national implications as well? Because every state, as you pointed out, has these state utility commissions that theoretically are overseeing the utilities and theoretically are ensuring public safety and theoretically are have only the public interest at heart. Tell us just a bit more about that. We just have about a minute left, but I'd really like to conclude by having your thoughts on that, please. Catherine Blunt. Sure, absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, these, uh, these utility companies operate as regional monopolies. They, they do need to be subject to regulatory oversight. And if we're talking about, you know, issues with safety, um, greater potential failure of infrastructure, it, the, the, the role of the regulator has always been important and it's becoming even more important going forward. And are those political appointments or are those appointments to those com- state utility commissions, are they uh, 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 based on competence and experience generally? Uh, well, they are, I mean, they are appointed by legislative bodies. Uh, so in some ways it's political, but they're, they're supposed to be appointed based on their ability to understand these things, which, as you can imagine, with things with the power grid can be quite complex. So you need someone with a mind for that. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Catherine Blunt, award-winning journalist, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Her new book is California Burning the Rise, the Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric, the Rise and Fall. That's what the story is. Thank you so much for the book, which is available at your local independent bookstore. It is an important book. Go read it. Thank you, Catherine Blunt. Really appreciate your time and your book. Thank you so much. Enjoyed the conversation. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hey, everyone. Gordon Oliver here. And if you don't know me, I'm the host of the weekly Saturday show, The Cambridge Connection, on WHMP.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. For the last year, I've been privileged to connect you, our listeners, with experts from a variety of financial industries and organizations that offer assistance and education to help everyone become more financially fit. See you on Saturday. Join Brent Hines, Executive Director of the Foundation for Financial Wellness, because being financially well is a source of power, contentment, and peace. People like pink ladies. Macintosh and McCowns are popular. Red Delicious is the old standby. Gala, the new darling. Some people swear by Honeycrisp. And who doesn't love Granny Smith? 
appling at River Valley Co-op. All the greatest hits, plus heirlooms like Carrie's Irish Pippin and Belle de Boscoop. With 50 varieties of apples, you never know. There's an heirloom called Sops of Wine? Really? Hooray, hooray, an apple a day. River Valley Co-op, wild about local apples. At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CISA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CISA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson and Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19 and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Many political entities, and specifically municipalities in Massachusetts, are beginning a system of ranked choice voting. I think it's really important to know how this is working nationally and throughout uh, the elect elective electoral system. And we have with us this morning to discuss that, Will Mantel from Fair Vote. Let's start for... A remedial, with a remedial question, Will, thank you for being with us. Fair, view, fair Vote, what is it? Well, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, fair Vote is an organization that works for electoral reforms that will improve our elections and give voters more voice uh, in the way we elect our officials. And one of the reforms that we are really excited about and that is spreading really quickly across the country is ranked choice voting. Okay. So we actually have tried to demonstrate ranked choice voting here on the show. We did something, I think, on f choices of, what were you, food, Monty? Sports, sports teams, something like no, that. I, can't, I think it was food, yeah. Um, the mayor of East Hampton came up with a mock ranked choice vote about food for us, and we, uh, we did it live on the air. And there, there is ranked choice voting in a number of municipalities throughout Massachusetts. There has just been an example of ranked choice voting with national consequences. Can you tell us about that, please, Will? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there are two states uh, that now use ranked choice voting 
for all of their federal elections. So to elect uh, their senators, their uh, Congress people, and, and so forth. Uh, and one of those was last night. Uh, Alaska had its first ranked choice voting election. It was a special election uh, to replace a congressman uh, who passed away after serving for a very, very long time. Um, and Mary Peltola uh, won that race. She'll become the first uh, woman member of the House of Representatives, the first Alaska Native member of the House of Representatives uh, to represent Alaska in some time. Uh, and then the other state that does it is uh, Maine, which is very close to you guys. Okay. So tell us more. Use the name. Sure. You can say the name of the person who didn't win. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> the FCC does not prohibit that. those words. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as you, uh, as you are getting at, Sarah Palin uh, was one of the other big uh, frontrunners in the race. It was a three-person race uh, between Sarah Palin, Nick Begich, and Mary Peltola. And what was really interesting is Mary Peltola got the most first-choice support. Uh, so she led the race the whole way, um, and she would have won if it were a traditional election, and the two Republican candidates in the race had split the vote. But what you might have expected uh, was folks who cast their first-choice vote for Nick Begich, who was another Republican, you might have expected them to give their second choice to Sarah Palin because she was also a Republican. But surprisingly, only half of them did. A full 30% of, uh, of baggage voters, and again, that's folks who you would expect to be pretty conservative, pretty Republican, a full 30% of them preferred the Democrat Mary Peltola over Sarah Palin, and about 20% of them just didn't want to rank a second choice at all. So it was really interesting to see uh, how those second choices broke out. Um, and, you know, Alaska is not a deep red state, but it's a, it's a reddish, it's a conservative-leaning state. And what will be really interesting is if Sarah Palin and also Nick Begich kind of shift the way that they campaign. Uh, again, this was a special election. Uh, we will have the regularly scheduled election. I know it's a little, uh, a lot of things going on. We'll have the regularly scheduled election in November. So they'll have another two months to campaign. It'll be really interesting to see if Sarah Palin and Nick Begich try to be more positive about ranked choice voting, try to do what makes you successful in a ranked choice voting race, which is say, I rank and you should too, try to build some common ground with, uh, uh, you know, supporters of other candidates, um, and if they do better next time around. Would you please explain for us, Will Mantel, uh, Mantel how uh, the Alaska congressional election ended up with two Republicans and one Democrat on the ballot that would then be subject to this ranked choice voting. How did we get to that point? Yeah, so Alaska has a very specific form uh, of ranked choice voting. So in Maine, they use ranked choice voting in their normal primaries. You know, you rank your candidates in a Democratic primary, you rank your candidates in a Republican primary, um, and then also in, um, in federal general elections. Okay, so what happened in Alaska that ended up that gave us this election yesterday? Sure. Um, in Alaska, they have what's called a top four open primary. So every single primary candidate is on the ballot, and you go ahead and pick one. Uh, again, they're Republicans, they're Democrats, independents, libertarians, and the top four folks advance. And then among those top four, there's a general election that uses ranked choice voting. So that allows voters to rank candidates one, two, three, four, as fit. Uh, but basically what that does is 
when you have four folks on the ballot, uh, you are likely to run into some problems. You're likely to run into vote splitting. Uh, you're likely to run into, you know, folks being concerned about the lesser of two evils or the spoiler effect, these things you hear all the time. Uh, but ranked choice voting really addresses those problems. Does fair vote have a position with regard to, and tell me if this is not the right term, an open primary where they're not partisan, they're not based on political parties? And do you think that this this process of uh, open primaries is a good one? Sure. So fair vote uh, actually doesn't have an official position on open primaries. Our focus is really on ranked choice voting, and we think it works in different scenarios. So we think it works with an open primary. We think it works with regular primaries. We think it works really well in local elections. Sometimes it can replace uh, having to do two rounds of elections or having to do a runoff and you still get a majority winner. Um, but this is a, a, a really positive display for uh, for the open primary. And you had uh, a candidate in Mary Paltola who advanced, uh, who really wasn't on anyone's radar. Uh, you know, in the old days, the way that Alaska ran special elections is the Democratic powers that be would get together and decide who they nominate, and the Republican powers that be would get together and decide who they, not, they nominate, and those would be the two choices that voters in Alaska had. Uh, and you certainly wouldn't have had Mary Peltola on the ballot. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, a, a pretty good indicator for the open primary system, even if fair vote doesn't have an official position on it, and it's not our focus, uh, you know, as ranked choice voting spreads across the country. Could you... Give us your opinion on what this election says or doesn't with regard to what is apt to happen in the midterms when, well, Alaska is going to vote for its uh, congressional representative again because this was an election simply to fill the, not simply, but to fill the, un, uh, the, the remainder of the term. So tell us what you think this says about, well, where the midterms are going. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Alaska is Alaska. It's a very unique state. Uh, people are very nonpartisan and independent in their approach. So I don't want to, you know, over extrapolate or, or oversell based on what happened there. Um, I think what we saw from Mary Peltola, which is really interesting, uh, is we saw someone who really focused on local issues um, and who, at least on the Democratic side, you know, was pretty in line with most national Democratic positions, but really spoke to her local community on a couple of uh, issues that are particularly important to them, particularly around fisheries, around energy exploration. Uh, and so I wonder if that's a model both for her to repeat in November and, and for other candidates, um, you know, on the Democratic side, but theoretically on the Republican side as well, to pursue going into midterms. We are speaking with Will Mantel from Fair Vote. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I have this question, which is if the, Repu the Democrat got 40 percent of the vote, approximately, why don't the Republicans simply pick one candidate to run in November and, well, coalesce and support that one candidate and put an end to this ranked choice voting? Well, we'll see about that. We'll continue this conversation right after the break. With George Pratt, this is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
Greenville Police Chief Robert Haig Jr. will be reinstated as commander of the police department today following an investigation. On May 6th, Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner placed Chief Haig and another member of the police department on paid administrative leave following a legal matter that developed prior to the split verdict in the Buchanan and Dodge versus City of Greenfield civil suit. The mayor ordered an independent investigation following a conversation between Chief Haig and the other party on April 22nd in the parking lot of Hampshire County Superior Court, which Chief Haig interpreted as an attempt to circumvent court proceedings regarding a possible settlement. The investigation revealed there was no credible evidence that Chief Haig violated city policy. Northampton Public School students returned to the classroom today. Parents worried about school bus safety will have some extra reassurance thanks to marked and unmarked Northampton police cars following the buses on their morning routes. Police Captain Victor Caputo spoke with Western Mass News. We're aware of the bus routes and we will have marked and unmarked police vehicles trailing school buses looking for violations. Uh, we do this every year. Caputo says they will also conduct these operations randomly throughout the school year to make sure drivers are abiding by the rules of the road. Fundraising efforts are going well for the Jones Library renovation in Amherst. Leaders of a capital campaign have raised over $3 million about nine months ahead of schedule. The library has also secured $50,000 in the state budget to pay for a portion of the design costs for a space for its English language and citizenship program with help from legislators Joe Comerford and Mindy Dom. Soaring costs and inflation have pushed the overall cost of the project from $36.3 million to between $43 and $50 million. Your 22 News forecast, mostly sunny for today with a high of 78. Clear tonight, chilly down to 48. Then tomorrow, another sunny day with a high of 80. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden pronunciará un discurso en horario estelar el jueves frente al Independence Hall en Filadelfia sobre la continua batalla por el alma de la nación, según hizo público la Casa Blanca el lunes. Anunciado como un discurso importante poco más de dos meses antes de las elecciones de mitad de periodo, Biden, dijo la Casa Blanca, discutirá cómo están en juego la posición de la nación en el mundo y su democracia. Biden ha tratado cada vez más de retratar las elecciones de noviembre como una opción para los votantes entre los republicanos Ultramaga, una referencia al eslogan de la campaña Make America Great Again del expresidente Donald Trump y los demócratas. La semana pasada les dijo a sus seguidores que tenían que votar para salvar literalmente la democracia una vez más y etiquetó cierta ideología republicana como semifascismo. En otras informaciones, funcionarios de la ciudad de Holyoke, incluidos dos concejales y miembros de la Oficina de Planificación y Desarrollo Económico de la ciudad, se reunieron el lunes en Keymar Plaza para discutir oportunidades para impulsar la presencia de negocios en el centro comercial. La tienda Keymar ha permanecido vacante desde su cierre en 2020. Ese cierre se produjo a finales de una retirada a nivel nacional de Keymar que se encontró incapaz de competir en un mercado minorista dominado por otras cadenas como Walmart, Target y Amazon. La empresa Transformco, con sede en Illinois, es propietaria del inmueble en Holyoke bajo una subsidiaria. El alcalde Joshua García y Opet se están comprometiendo con Transformco para considerar la reutilización de su propiedad en Holyoke, que está listada para arrendamiento o venta. García señaló que él y el personal de Opet continuarán su diálogo con Transformco y las partes interesadas para reconstruir y reactivar el sitio. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Will Mantell, who is the press secretary for Fair Vote. 
that is an organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. It has been, how many years did you tell us Fair Vote has been in existence, Will? We are in our 30th year. We were formed in 1992. And there are two aspects of the work of Fair Vote. Uh, tell us that, if you would, please. Yeah, absolutely. So we focus on ranked choice voting. Uh, and then the other big thing we're working on is something called the Fair Representation Act that would change the way that we elect members of Congress, and we would use the proportional form of ranked choice voting to have, hopefully, a far more representative and a more effective U.S. House of Representatives. And is that, since states control elections, and uh, and that is the constitutional framework, is this a state-by-state fight for uh, ranked choice voting, or is there something on the federal level that would bring us ranked choice voting? So we are trying to move at all levels, but it is city by city. It is state by state. We're now in 55 cities, counties, and states. We're hoping to add to that number, and we're hoping that 500 cities will be using ranked choice voting uh, in the next three or four years. Let's go back to Alaska and what happened yesterday in this special election uh, for a vacant House seat in the Federal House of Representatives. Tell us again how the returns came out, what the results were, and how ranked choice voting gives us the, the, the uh, result that we have. Uh, so let's start there, and then I want to get to, is this the same thing that's going to happen uh, in a couple of months when the election is repeated? Because this seat will just be filled until the end of this term, which is January uh, 2023. So help us understand yesterday, and then we'll ask you to look in a crystal ball and tell us about the future. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll walk through the mechanics a little bit. Um, so first, we saw the first choice results. So how many voters ranked Paltola first? How many voters ranked Sarah Palin first? And how many voters ranked Baggage first? So there were so only three choice. Only three choices? I thought you'd said there, there were, were four. There were only three choices on the ballot this time around. This was a real unicorn election. It was at a strange time. It was for a seat that had been open for uh, that became open for the first time in 49 years. Um, and there were only three candidates because a fourth candidate who was supposed to be on the ballot dropped out late. There will be four candidates on the ballot in November. But that's a lot of explanation. So of the three candidates who were on the ballot yesterday, you had Mary Peltola. She got about 40% of the first choices. You had Sarah Palin. She got about 31% of the first choices. And then you had Nick Begich. He got about 28% of the first choices. If no one has a majority among first choices, then what you do is you go to the instant runoff process. You look at the second choices on the ballot of the last place candidate. So what you did is Begich was in last place. He was eliminated. Let's look at the folks who ranked him first. Who did they rank second? And let's add those who ranked Palin second to her totals. Let's add those who ranked Peltola second to her totals. And what was really fascinating is Begich and Palin are both Republicans. And together, about 60% of Alaskans rank them first. Again, it's a reddish state. And so you would expect that a real good majority of Begich voters would rank Palin second. But what's really interesting, a combination of local politics and the way that they both ran their campaign, Palin railed against ranked choice voting she said she didn't rank her own bat ballot. Begich spent a lot of time talking about how much he disliked ranked choice voting. 
And the Alaska Republican Party, interestingly, ran a campaign called Rank the Red. In other words, rank Republicans, trying to encourage voters to, if they liked Begich first, rank him first and rank Palin second. If they liked Palin better, rank Palin first and Begich second. But basically to consolidate that vote. But the vote did not consolidate. Only half of those Begich voters, again, you'd expect them to be Republican-leaning, only half of them ranked Palin as their second choice. A full 30% ranked Peltola as their second choice. And about 20% said, I don't like either of them, and decided not to rank a second choice. But that's really, really fascinating uh, in an increasingly partisan atmosphere to say, to have a situation where 30% of people say, well, I want a conservative Republican first, but I'll take a Democrat second. What does that tell you? What does it tell fair vote about how ranked choice voting really works uh, and whether uh, these nonpartisan primaries, these open primaries, whether they work, whether they're a good idea? I mean, I understand our, our listening audience for the most part is saying, yeah, well, this worked out fine for the Democrats, good for the yeah. Democrats. But 60 percent of the people voted first for a conservative Republican. Uh, and now there's a progressive Democrat uh, who holds the seat. So if we're interested in democracy and what people really want, oh, well, am I getting an evil eye from Monty? <laughs> well, she still won the most votes. She just didn't get more than 50 percent. OK, well, uh, Straighten us out here before we come to fisticuffs yeah. in the studio. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so Peltola got the, the most first-choice votes, and the Republicans could have consolidated behind Sarah Palin. That's what the numbers look like. But what ranked-choice voting does is, one, it gets us to a majority winner, and, two, it gives us more and better information about what voters really want. And what voters said in this race was they wanted Peltola over Palin when it was a head-to-head matchup. Uh, it was a one-on-one -on -one matchup once Begich was eliminated, and Peltola won this round. Uh, and what we'll see in November is, is that going to stick? Is that a consequence of Peltola running a positive campaign? Is that a consequence of Palin and Begich running pretty negative campaign? And what will be interesting to see is will Palin and Begich uh, maybe work to connect more with each other's voters, uh, maybe take advantage of this system? Again, it's a majority system, and probably in most races, the majority of Alaska voters are going to pick a Republican. Uh, are they going to use this system to their benefit? It strikes me that what this vote says, and I'd appreciate your response, is sure. that the majority of voters in Alaska favor a conservative Republican. But when it came to actually putting Sarah Palin back in power and giving her the bully pulpit, pulpit of a uh, congressional seat, that was a bridge too far. And that what and the, and the voters were just not willing to affirmatively say yes. If I can't have my first Republican conservative, uh, I I'm going to go for the Democrat because I just don't like Sarah Palin. Is is that a, too simplistic? 
I think it, I think it might be the case. Uh, I think we should also give some credit to Mary Peltola for, again, running a good race and, and running a positive and, and bridge-building race where she tried to connect with more voters, and that's how you win in ranked choice voting. You connect with more voters. As opposed votes. to building a bridge to nowhere like some other candidates might have done? As, <laughs> as, opposed to, as opposed to building a bridge to nowhere or not building bridges. Um, and, and so I, I, I think let's take a look at her campaign strategy and, and maybe give some credit to that and see whether the Republican candidates uh, will emulate that in November. Um, I, I, think that, I think that makes sense, yeah. How do we know, how do you know, how does Alaska know who the candidates mm-hmm. will be in November? So I, I told you this was a unicorn election. On one side of the ballot, Alaskans voted in the regular primary. And so that's their regular primary for U.S. Senate and governor and state legislature. And they also had a regular primary for this very House race. And then they you flipped mean, their ballot over. So there was a pri- so voted. on the ballot, there's one part of it. This is a primary. It's a nonpartisan pri- uh, primary, uh-huh. open primary. Uh, pick your four favorites for this congressional seat in the primary and then I think you're about to tell me they also had, a, as part of the ballot, the, this election. Is that right? That's absolutely right. The same day, you flipped your ballot over and you ranked on the other side. So who did well in the actual primary? Who got the most votes in the primary aspect of this? Mary Peltola. Oh, so on um, both, she then, won on both this special election and the primary. Correct. Um, and Mary Peltola will advance along with, again, Sarah Palin and Nick Begich. Uh, and I believe that Sarah Palin got more votes than Nick Begich, as she has sort of at every step of the process. Um, and then it looks like a libertarian candidate named Chris Bai will round out that ballot and will be the fourth person on that ballot in November. Uh, and, of course, they'll also have races for U.S. Senate. A lot of folks are paying attention to that because Lisa Murkowski is on the ballot. Uh, They'll have races for U.S. governor, um, and they'll have races for state legislature. Um, And one thing that's really fascinating about this combination of open primaries and ranked choice voting is you're going to see some very red and very blue districts where in the past you would just have whoever the Republican Party nominee is or whoever the Democratic Party nominee is, that person wins. But you'll have maybe three Republicans or three Democrats on the ballot in a pretty safe seat. Um, and folks will have the opportunity to decide kind of which brand of Republicanism or which brand of Democrat they like. So it'll be really interesting to see that nuance and, and hopefully it'll lead to more nuanced and effective representation uh, for Alaska. In the primary part of this ballot, not the election for the actual House mm-hmm. seat, where the uh, uh, the swearing in, I, th- I think you told us during the break, will be next week. How many candidates were there in the primary? In the special primary, there were forty eight candidates. That was a record. Uh, it was a it was a very crowded race. Very, very crowded. I want to I want to see that debate. I'm going to rank <laughs> choice every single one of them, one through forty eight. <laughs> That might be a big lift. <laughs> I feel That's bad with people counting the boats when mine comes in. Oh my, he's checked them all off. <laughs> could they do that? Could they check? Could they rank choice in one to forty-eight, or they so, could only rank choice the first four? 
so this is so the primary is pick one. So you do not have to worry about ranking all 48 or ranking all 20 or 15 or whatever it is. You just pick one. And then it narrows down to four, and you only have to rank among the four. So hopefully a much better voter experience. And, of course, it's a little different, but we rank things every day. Everywhere ranked choice voting is used, people understand how to do it. They tell us that they like it. Uh, and filling in those bubbles, first, second, third, or first, second, third, and fourth, is pretty simple. So they'll rank those four in November. They did not rank them yesterday. Is that correct? They, correct. They ranked three uh, on, in, in the results that came out yesterday. No, the primary, but for the primary that was on the ballot yesterday, they picked one, and then in November they will have four to choose from in a ranked fashion. Is that correct? That is, per- that is correct. Okay, so there was no ranking in the primary yesterday. It was just a one pick. And then the actual ranking will happen in the actual election in November, not this primary. Correct. Got and it. then there's also the special election whose results we got yesterday, and that was a ranked election. Do we have it, Monty? What? Do we understand this? I have it. Yeah, I think oh, I got it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to each other about that more when we do our fish wrap on the other side. Is Will Mantel from Fair Vote. Thank you so much for your time today and your explanation. Really interesting. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hello, I'm Hampshire County Sheriff Patrick Haling. And I'm a Democratic candidate for sheriff focused on progressive community-based programming. I'm running for re-election this year. I've been your sheriff for six years, and I love the work I do because I help people to be productive members of the community. Please remember to vote for me on September 6th. Learn more by visiting our Facebook page or website, klaneforsheriff.com. Thank you. Paid for by the committee to elect Patrick J. Kahalane. Hi, this is Nick Seaman from the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst. We're now open seven days a week from 8 a.m. And we have live music every Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 1. We continue to make our great sandwiches, bake our wonderful croissants, Danish breads and desserts, and brew Dean's Beans Organic Coffee. We also have a freezer full of entrees to go that will help you simplify your life. And if you're having a party, let us know how we can help you make it a success. Just call our catering department to talk about menu options. On a political note, always remember that the Second Amendment says, quote, well-regulated. Make sure you call your congressman and senator and demand that they do their jobs. We're the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst, having fun with food and politics since 1986. Save 30% at WHMP.com. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job. 
a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community, and that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association and this station. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Monty and I would like to turn to a story that we have covered on the store, on the show, and that we have spoken with the mayor of Greenfield about on a number of occasions. Let me share with you this from the Greenfield Recorder this morning under the headline, Mayor Reinstates Police Chief Haig. Wiedegartner says probe found no evidence. Chief, who was put on leave after the biased verdict, violated policy in conversation outside court. Now, if you're confused, we're going to start with confusion and we're going to end with confusion because I've read this story twice this morning and I'm still confused. Me but, too. So, so you rank your first one first. Right? And then you, <laughs> oh, no, we're not talking about that anymore. That's another confusion. <laughs> yeah, well, that was pretty clear at the end. <laughs> okay, was, yes. Right. You don't, don't rank choice vote in the primary. You rank, you rank choice, choice vote in, in the, the general. general. Got it. So Greenfield, Dateline Greenfield, uh, following a city-ordered independent investigation, Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner has reinstated Police Chief Robert Haig, Jr., who has been on administrative leave, paid administrative leave, since May 6th. The reinstatement was effective today. In a Wednesday evening press release, Wiedegartner, the mayor, said the city had ordered an investigation into a matter that, quote, involved a conversation between Chief Haig and the other party on April 22nd in the parking lot of the Hampshire County Superior Court, which, the conversation, which Chief Haig interpreted as an attempt to circumvent court proceedings regarding a possible settlement. The other party so is identified as the other party and is not identified in the statement from the mayor or, well, or in the newspaper article. And the conclusion of the investigation According to the mayors, there's no credible evidence that the chief violated city policy. Huh? This after just <laughs> help, receiving help, a help. verdict, though, <laughs> saying that there was racial discrimination and that Robert Haig and his department was responsible for that and that the city will pay for this racial discrimination. And then immediately after that verdict comes out, Robbie Haig gets put on probation. The mayor says it's an unrelated incident, which still remains somewhat vague. And now there is another party that is listed here. It's hard not to read into who you might think this other party would be, especially when one of the allegations is that they're trying to circumvent the court system in regards to a payout, perhaps. Uh, this is when I miss the voice of Chris Collins, who would say, when you say no comment or leave a vacuum, we fill that vacuum with what, <laughs> whatever information we would like. I... Still don't know what the investigation was investigating. We had an investigation to see whether or not the chief should continue in his position as chief. And the investigation says he hasn't violated any policy, but 
what happened? What was the conversation? What were they talking about? What's the? Why is this a secret? I mean, that's the part. That and, I, and why does it come directly on the heels of a guilty finding in regards to racial discrimination? Well, I mean, it is those well, two a, things happen. A, pla- at the, a plaintiff's verdict. Yeah, plaintiff's it, verdict. This was not a criminal case. Okay, it was got a Civil it. case. But that said, I think that Greenfield really has to come out and tell us more about what happened. I mean, this is. It's like shadow boxing. There's an investigation, and what did we investigate? We're not going to tell you exactly, and then we're not. But we are going to reinstate the police chief, and the other party is going to remain unidentified. There are going to be people all over Greenfield who know the other party, who the other party is, right? You would assume. You would assume, and we assume we can get back to that in the coming shows. So I think it's worth reading. It's the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette as well. It's the front page of the Greenfield Recorder. Mayor reinstates Police Chief Haig. And we will, I promise we'll get to the bottom of it. We'll at least get to the middle of it. We promise we'll try to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) (laughs) We will. Thank you, Monty. Thank all of you for listening and for being with us today. We'll see you back here again tomorrow. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10.